Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight comes from Joshua chapter 9. I hope you have your Bibles with you tonight and turn to that passage to what may seem like a very strange passage, a very strange story in the midst of Joshua and Israel's conquest of the land. Tonight we meet the Gibeonites. Beginning in verse 1, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast to the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we know? that we should make a covenant with you. They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shihon the king of Heshbon, and Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provision in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when he took it from our house. And our food for the journey on the day we set out to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wise skins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provision, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived amongst them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sheparoth, Baroth, and Kiriath Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This will 
we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So he feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, to this day in that place that he should choose. Thus the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Sun Tzu, in his book, The Art of War, says all warfare is based on deception. He says, hence, when able to attack, seem unable. Forces must appear inactive. When near, make the enemy believe you are far away. And when far away, make him believe you are near. Hold out baits to entice the enemy. Feign disorder and then crush them. Well, it's almost as if Sun Tzu knew of this story of the Gibeonites and their deception of Israel because they truly had perfected deception and knew how to feign disorder. No doubt Sun Tzu would have given them high marks in their art of war and their deception tactics. But the question is, is Sun Tzu right? Is all warfare based on deception? Is deception lawful? Should we condemn or should we commend the Gibeonites on their ploy? Well, we can say tonight decisively that deception was and is wrong. And yet... And yet God was merciful and gracious to use such a deceptive ploy for his own purposes and even for his own glory. I have to admit to you this night that as a boy, I loved this story, but I think I loved it for the wrong reasons. I admired the Gibeonites and their cunning deception and their escapability. You have to admit the Moldy bread and worn-out clothes and sandals were a nice touch. But now having spent time studying and meditating on this passage, I'm more impressed with God, who despite man's sin, always accomplishes his purposes. Yes, a person can deceive another person, just like the Gibeonites here, not only deceive Joshua and the leaders, but all of Israel. You can never deceive God. He is never fooled. Yet he uses fools for his redemption and even his purposes and his plans. And we'll see that tonight in three points. First, cunning deception. 
Second, covenantal honor and duty. And third, consequent service and privilege. First, the cunning deception. As we saw last week, that the Israelites and Joshua had renewed the covenant at Shechem. This historical place where God appeared to Abraham long ago and then to Jacob. And both Jacob and Abram made an altar there because God said, this is the land that I am going to give to you and to your descendants. And so Joshua, as they now come into that land to realize that promise that God had made so long ago, they are to set their eyes on God's faithfulness. That God fulfills all of his promises. And in the midst of God's faithfulness and in the midst of God's promises that God's people are to be faithful to him. And so they lay out there the covenant blessing and curses on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. But now in chapter 9 they are back to the conquest of the land of Canaan. And we begin reading in chapter 9 that all of the inhabitants of Canaan, you see the list there, decided that they cannot do this alone. They've seen the defeat of Jericho and Ai, and they recognize if they are going to have any hope of defeating Israel, they must do it together. And so it says there that they gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But the inhabitants of Gibeon come up with another idea. They do not believe that they can defeat Israel, which is good, which we even hear of this at the very end when the deception finally is revealed. They make it very clear of what God had said to Moses and It says that they feared greatly for their lives. That part was good. But the second part was not so good. Instead of coming to Israel, instead of begging for mercy, they come up with this idea of deception. That perhaps they could contrive a truce, make a peace agreement, with them, but do so through the back door. And I wonder, no doubt this is perhaps idle speculation, but I wonder who came up with this plan. It seems to be a plan that was devised on a sleepless night after much hand wringing, thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? In the midst of Israel and Joshua coming, no doubt they are going to defeat us. Ah, I know. I have an idea. Is that going to work? I don't know. But it's worth a try. It's the only chance we have. Or so they thought. And so off they go. But notice with me the several ways that they deceive Israel. First, we see this false purpose. The very reason they did this was to deceive This was their intention. It was not to curry favor or sympathy. As it says in verse 3, they act with cunning. And everything they did came out of this false motive. To act cunningly and 
deceitfully. The Catechism on the ninth commandment says that our obligation is to promote truth between man and man. To fully speak the truth and only the truth in all matters at all times. Well, we see that this was not the intention of the Gibeonites. Their plan was to speak falsehoods in all matters, at all times. This was their intention. This was their false purpose. And they come with false evidence. Look at all the false evidence that they give with the manner in which they come. You see this in verses 4 and 5, that is, they make provisions. They make provisions in order to deceive. Everything they came with was to be worn out. And so we see that they came with worn out sacks and worn out wineskins that were torn and mended with worn out patches on their sandals and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. No doubt they took their clothes and ran them through the dirt and ripped some holes in them and threw some rocks at their sacks and beat their sandals with a hammer. And they found rank bread and wineskins that were on the trash heap. No doubt they probably even found some worn out donkeys. Some donkeys that looked like they had probably aged because of the long journey in which they supposedly took them on. Why did they do all of this? Well, it was to give credence to their story. In fact, you see this doing this, uh, them doing this at the very end. This is how they try to seal the deal, so to speak. As they complete their stories, they can point to their things in verse 12 and 13 and say, look at our bread. It was worn when it came out of the oven, but now it's dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were, were new when we filled them. And now, behold, they have burst and are good for nothing. See, all of this verifies what we are saying is true even though all that they were saying was surely a lie. Not only did they come with false evidence, but they came with false testimony. So they come to meet with Joshua and Israel, dressed in the worn-out garbs and worn-out donkeys in their sacks. They don't leave Joshua and the Israelites to assume. They don't wait for Joshua to say to them, You ain't from around here, are you? No, they fully, with their words and with their lips, deceive and lie. As much, if not more, than they did with their actions and their false evidence. Notice again that common phrase. We see it at the beginning of verse 6. We have come from a distant country. And then in verse 9. We've come from a very distant country. Verse 13, we have had all these things worn out from a very long journey. This was all false. The Gibeonites or the Hivites as they were known were Canaanites. Their cities were 
approximately only 30 miles from where they met Joshua on this day. All of it was lies. And then notice they even take the truth and they twist it. Notice this is a part of their talk, a part of their speech. They took some thoughts and twisted them. And you see the deep level deception. They say in verse 9 that we have come because we have heard of the name of the Lord your God. For we heard a report of everything that God did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, to Og and Shihon. But notice what they don't say. All of those things that they did say were true. God did miraculous things in Egypt and to Shihon and to Og. But those were things that happened long ago. Those were things that happened 40 years before they come now. Notice what they don't say. They don't say, and we saw what you did to Jericho and Ai. Right? Because those things were as impressive, if not even more impressive, than what God did to Shihon and Og. But those things would have been too recent, too soon for a report to have gotten to them if they truly came from a faraway land. And so we see this multifaceted lie. And that this was sin through and through. And we might want to justify it on their behalf and think, well, they were Canaanites. Maybe this was acceptable in their culture. Maybe they didn't know the Ten Commandments. They didn't know any better. No. We can't let them off the hook. There is no culture that lying is tolerated. It might be justified, but everyone knows that lying is wrong. Why? Because all of mankind is made in the image of God, and God's character is one of truth. And therefore, man must bear truth if he is going to represent God in his image. Though man might try and Though man does suppress that truth and even suppress that image in which he is made in, they ultimately cannot escape the truth. And so falsehood is always wrong, no matter when or where it takes place. But second, I want you to see this night the covenantal honor and duty. Joshua and Israel should have known better. There's several aspects that demonstrate this to be false. And in a world of deception and lies, we should look for these things so that we would not be duped in the same way that Joshua and Israel were on this day. Notice that they ignore their suspicions. In verse 7, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, well, perhaps you live among us. How can we know if we can make a covenant with you? Seems like they might have had some suspicion of who these people might have been. But they don't follow up on that suspicion. Notice that the Gibeonites' report lacks any particulars. Notice when Joshua says to them and asks the question, Who are you and where do you come from? They don't answer that question. 
Notice they just say that they're from a very far country. But they never say, from where? Nothing that can ever be fact-checked to see if it's true. As we saw earlier, you see their story growing. First it says that they come from a distant country, but then when questioned, they say they come from a very distant country. And then you also see that their true intentions are there, but they lie just below the surface. Notice in verse 6, it says, We have come from a very distant country, so now make a covenant with us. You might think that's a little bit forceful, but they do the same in verse 11. Come now, make a covenant with us. Notice that. There's a sense of urgency. Hurry up. Come now. Time is of the essence. Notice it's not, we've heard so much of you and so much of this God that you worship and we want to know more. We want to learn more about him. No, it's always, what can I get? Come now, give me this or give me that. You see their true intentions amidst the falsehood is shown. The men of Israel should have said, well, Wait, if you are such, from such a far country, why are you so eager for this? We have no intention of taking your land. We're only going to have this land, this land that God has given to us in Canaan. But unfortunately, Joshua and the leaders do not ask that question. And as I said before, in this world of deception and lies we need to be wise we need to be discerning we need not be uncaring we need to be merciful but we're to use right wisdom and discernment as the Lord has given to us there's not a week that doesn't go by that we usually get a call here usually on the phone sometimes once in a while a few will stop by and they're looking for some type of help some type of mercy need. And oftentimes, the things that we see here laid out in the Gibeonites are true in these cases. Not always, but oftentimes they are. Where they'll come asking for prayer and telling you why and telling you a great story. And I'm sure some of it is true and Do you empathize with them? But you also know some of it is not. And we're always willing to pray with those whoever may come. But it's usually always the same in the end. Sadly, they're looking for something. Can you give me money for this or for that? And as a result, sometimes you see the true intentions that it really isn't for the spiritual care. It's not for the prayer. It's just for that which they can get. I have to tell you that there was one time, and and unfortunately there has only been one time that I can think of in my ten years of ministry where that wasn't the case. There was a man named Donnie who came. This was at my former church, and he met with the pastors there and had said that he had lost his job and that he was wanting some prayer and some help in finding another And so, again, we were more than willing to pray with him. 
And after the prayer, there was silence because normally we are so accustomed to hearing, and can you give me this or give me that? And yet this time there was nothing. There was just silence. And in fact, it became awkward silence. And I think one of us broke the ice by saying, well, you know, Donnie, we would like to give you some, some gift cards so that you can go to the store and get some food. And, and his response was no. He was adamant. No, I, I will not take any of the things that you would give to me, he said, I have come for prayer. And that is it. And he said, okay, well, this Wednesday night we have a prayer group that meets every Wednesday. We'd love for you to come. And he said, I'll be there. And I think to this day he still goes every Wednesday night to that prayer group. And you also know what he has he has a job as well but sadly that is the exception and not the rule but Joshua and the leaders should have known better and you see their fatal error there in verse 14 that they took some of their provisions they also took their story but they did not ask counsel from the Lord they had sinful self-reliance well this has to be true. They enter into a covenant before the Lord without even consulting the Lord. But what I want you to see tonight is that even though they were deceived, and within three days they realized it, though they had been lied to royally, though the Gibeonites had sinned, though they had entered into this covenant under false pretense, we see that they honored their word. In verse 17, after they uh, recognize that they have been deceived, they set out to go find them to, no doubt, as it seems, find out what is taking place. And you might think that you know how this is going to end. As you read verse 17, the people of Israel set out and reach their cities on the third day. And you can almost think of it as a, as a western. You might even hear that western soundtrack playing. Joshua on his steed riding. Thinking that he is going to get some revenge. Joshua riding like John Wayne would have. Going to... Bring these low-down, lying scoundrels to justice. But that's not what we read, do we? It says in verse 18, But the people of Israel did not attack them. Why not? And in fact, it seems even the rest of the people were asking that question. It says that uh, the congregation murmured against the leaders. No doubt why, wondering, why not? These are scoundrels. These are liars. Why would you not enact revenge upon them? Why would you not do what you did to Jericho? Why would you not do what you did to Ai? Even more so. And they are given the reason in verse 19. The leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. 
We learn a valuable lesson here, do we not? Just because someone else does wrong does not mean we have the right to do wrong back. Ever. Though the entire world sins against us, we are not justified to sin in return. Because we cannot control others, that is true. We cannot control what they may do. But we can control ourselves and what we do. And so that means sometimes we're going to be wronged and sinned against. And instead of looking for a pound of flesh, there are times that we need to be wronged. And that we need to leave it in the hands of God. Paul says this in Romans 12 verse 3, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now obviously there is lawful means of justice, and we should use those, but this is speaking of sinful and and wrong means. And we're never to use sin or wrong means to get what we want, no matter how much it has been done to us in the same manner. And so Paul goes on to say in Romans twelve seventeen, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Joshua and Israel were to be men of their word, men of integrity even though the Gibeonites were not men of their work or people of integrity. And even as they entered into this foolishly, nevertheless, they had given that which they said they would do. And they were going to do it, even to their own hurt. Oh, there is such a lesson that needs to be learned there, is there not? That people will enter into things as long as it's good for them. But the minute it becomes difficult or in their minds no longer good or even painful, then they are out. We see this so often in marriage, do we not? And perhaps you even see some similarities here with the Gibeonites. Perhaps this is true of some of you that there's a spouse that lied to you, deceived you thought they were one thing and they were not, said that they were a believer and it seems later that they hid that from your understanding. But Joshua 9 would say that even then we need to be people of our word, that the believer is never to be the lever. If the unbeliever wants to leave, then as 1 Corinthians 7 says, then let them leave, but that is not to be the truth. Or true of the Christian. And this is true in church membership vows as well. People find so many foolish reasons to leave a church. Well, they painted the walls blue and everybody knows it should have been green. I'm out of here. That's reason to leave. No, no, it's not. Obviously, trivializing things, but all disputes within the church are ultimately trivial, aren't they? But there's nothing that we shouldn't be able to work through. 
as brothers and sisters in Christ, that there should be unity in the body of Christ because we're united by Christ. We took vows to one another for the peace and purity of the church. We need to honor those vows even if it becomes painful. We could go on to talk about business relationships and contracts and banks and financial transactions. Baptismal vows, vows of ordination. Christians need to be people of their word because we are people of the book. We represent a God that never deals with us in deception or lies. That's always faithful to his word and to his promises. Even to his own hurts, which is demonstrated in the crucifixion of His only begotten Son. Not my will, but Your will be done, O Father. Well, third then, we see the consequent service and privilege. Just because Gibeon did wrong, and even the leaders did wrong in not consulting God, it does not mean that there aren't consequences. There are always consequences of sin, as we saw with the sin of Achan a few weeks ago. But what we see here is sadly the Gibeonites thought that this was the only way. And sometimes it can feel like that, that the way of sin is the only way, the only path. But we know from 1 Corinthians 10 that there is no temptation that has seized you that is not common to man. But that when we are tempted, God gives us another way out, a good, a righteous way. So that we do not need to endure the the way of sin or the way of evil. And even here with the Gibeonites, no doubt that there was another path. You think if the Gibeonites came and told the truth of who they were and where they came from and begged for mercy. Do you think that God would have slaughtered them? I don't think so. Rahab and her family could have been a model of what to do. That the mercy and covenant was extended to Rahab because of her kindness to the Israelites. No doubt the same could have been done to the Gibeonites. But instead they believed that the deception was the only way. And so as a result they are assigned those able to be woodcutters and water carriers. That they're essentially given to indentured servitude here. But nevertheless, being a servant is better than being dead. But I want you to notice here something interesting, and it seems to be God's ray of grace, even in the midst of the sin. Did you pick up on where their service would be? That they wouldn't just be woodcutters and water carriers in general, but rather that they would be woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God. You see that in verse 23. In other words, that they were going to bring the water that would be used for the ritual cleansings in the temple. That they would bring the wood that would be used upon the altar for the sin offering and for the peace offering. In other words, they would be front and center to the heart 
of Israel and of their worship and near their God. In other words, they would have ample opportunity to see the gospel message displayed on a daily basis. Even as we sang earlier from Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Maybe we could even add to that, I would rather be a water carrier or a woodcutter in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. So there was countless opportunities for them to believe and trust in the God of Israel, even in the midst of their deception and lie that got them there. We don't know if any did truly believe, but it sure seems fitting in keeping with who our God is and who his nature is truly is. One commentator says this, they were hereby brought into a situation where they would naturally acquire the knowledge of the true God and of his revealed will. Were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house, were honored with near access to him in the service of the sanctuary, and thus placed in circumstances eminently favorable to their spiritual and eternal interests. And so do we not see God's extension of his mercy even despite man's sin? And how we see once again how God uses the evil of man for good and for his purposes. How he can take man's ill-gotten intentions and make something beautiful, even eternal from it. Of course we can. We see it throughout the scriptures and we see it preeminently in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ as we hear it every Sunday, even as we heard it this morning, that God used the likes of Judas and the religious council and Pilate and even Peter, none of which had good intentions leading up to the crucifixion. And yet God takes something horrible and makes it good. And God still does that today, does he not? He does it in our own life. We can probably even see it in our own testimony. How many of us came to Christ with the purest of intentions? Most of us have a testimony that we came to church because we really liked this boy or this girl that went there. Or we went there to make business connections. Or for our friend, for our children to have friends. There's a thousand wrong reasons why we come. But nevertheless, God uses them for the right reason. And that is to bring him, bring us near to himself. And so we can praise God for his grace and mercy that he can draw a straight line even with a crooked stick. And so aren't we amazed once again that these are far more than stories. Yes, they may thrill the heart of a nine or ten year old boy for the wrong reason, but they should thrill the heart of the believer for the right reason. 
And the right reason is for the grace and mercy of God that is displayed. That it shows us who we are and it shows us who God is and it shows us the plans and purpose He has for the redemption of the world. How He can go from deception to reception into His people. And even into the Lord Jesus Christ. As He takes sinners and makes them saints all through His grace and mercy. Indeed, God truly is amazing. That despite man's sin, He can make something good and great and beautiful. And He does it all through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we marvel and are amazed at the beautiful things that you do, the beautiful things that you do even in our life. Lord, that you can take things that are wicked and evil, such as ourselves, and make them good and beautiful and redeem them, O Lord. We pray that we, O Lord, would be the pot, that we would be the clay, and that you would be the potter that would continue to form and shape us, O Lord, into a vessel that is used, that is filled with your mercy and grace, and that that mercy and grace would be poured out to others because of what you're doing through us until you make us complete, until our salvation and redemption is complete in the day of glory. Oh Lord, use all our frailties, even that which would be dishonoring to you, to be honoring, oh Lord, as we turn and repent of it so that we would be well-pleasing because of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.